0: Welcome to A Story of Us, an anthropology podcast hosted entirely by the graduate students in the Department of Anthropology at The Ohio State University. We produce this podcast in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and the Anthropology Public Outreach Program known as APOP, for short. I'm your host, Shane Skaggs, and today we are kicking off a new podcast series that is focused on engagement, in anthropological research. I'm delighted to have Taylor Tamu join me today to help us kick off the new series. Taylor is a PhD student here in the anthropology department and the sitting president of our graduate students of Anthropology Association. So welcome to the show, Taylor.
1: Hello, 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 Shane. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show today. I'm super excited to be a part of this.
0: We're really happy to have you join us. To start us off, we like to ask everyone that comes on the show, uh, what is your definition of anthropology?
1: I like to keep my definition pretty broad. So for me, anthropology is the study of all people in all places at all times. And I think I like to keep it so broad, at least for me, because I believe anthropology is very much a chameleon and can allow you to basically piece together and tell the stories of people who are both, you know, dead and gone, and also who are alive. Um, And because of that, you know, it very much is tied to, you know, what it is your question is. And I think anthropology allows researchers, specifically social scientists, to sort of dive into very complex questions.
0: I like that a lot, that idea of uh, the, the anthropology as sort of a chameleon. So how did you end up in anthropology? What is your origin story?
1: Well, it's actually kind of a funny story. I, uh, I originally, when I was an undergrad, I changed my major like three times. So the first, first major... Um, was pre-med. I wanted to be a medical doctor. I wanted to work in the emergency room, be where all the action was. And then I took bio and I was like, okay, this, this can happen. I mean, maybe it'll still happen. And then I took chem and I was like, okay, chem actually is like really where it's at. I was super into, you know, learning about the different chemical compounds and things like that. But then I had my first chem lab after I changed my major to chemistry from pre-med and I was in the lab and all I could hear was white noise and it was just me and probably like four other people in there. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I'm too social of a person. Like this can't, this cannot be the rest of my life. Like this, this isn't going to work out. Um, So I went to a career um, coordinator for my college for um, social science and I was telling him a bit about my interest. I was like, well, I'm really sort of interested in helping people. I really want to help people, but I also like talking to people. Like, I don't want to be isolated from the people. Um, And he was telling me, he was like, well, I mean, have you thought about anthropology? And I was like, what is that exactly? Um, And he sort of gave, gave me like, you know, the Webster Dictionary definition of what anthropology was. And I was like, you know what? That actually sounds more in alignment with like, you know, my vibe and what I want to do. So yeah, just sign me up for that. I was like, can I, <laughs> the biggest question I had before I changed was can I still graduate on time? Cause I feel like that was like the biggest thing for me sophomore year, about to go into my junior year, really trying to make sure I wasn't about to like shoot myself in the foot and have to stay an extra year. Um, mm-hmm. And he told me it all matched up and it was sort of like a serendipitous moment because I still was able to graduate on time. I actually ended up being and getting involved in a bunch of different projects. Um, One that was specifically inspired by a documentary that I saw that was entitled "Is Inequality Making Us Sick?" Mm -hmm. Specifically, the one that talked about infant mortality among African American women in Chicago. And after I saw that documentary and actually got a chance to meet Dr. Ample, um, who was the lead neonatologist on that project, I sort of have never looked back and have been in the world of anthropology ever since.
0: Well, I think it's a, a really inspiring story because you often hear about people moving around from different disciplines and then they find someone that really like sparks their interest and kind of shows them the way. And sounds like for you, it was, you know, the career coordinator maybe pointed you in a direction, but it was really that documentary that, um, you know, brought it home, I guess, like, this is something I could do.
1: For sure. It definitely solidified, you know, at least as far as where I could see myself making a home in anthropology. I feel like it started off as something that was a lifeline, a logistical lifeline for me to get out of something that really wasn't in alignment with my passion. And I sort of fell into something that definitely has, helped shape who I am as a researcher and as a person.
0: So now you're here, you're a doctoral student here at Ohio State, you did your master's here. <laughs> tell us tell us a bit about your research here at Ohio State.
1: For my master's thesis, I actually sort of built upon my initial interest with race-based stress, but specifically looking at infant mortality and African-American women's perspectives towards safe sleep practicing, better known as the ABCs of safe sleep alone, back mm-hmm. and in the crib, and how, you know, just thinking through and also at the time living through trying to put a baby to sleep, but also trying to do it safely was basically the, the project in a nutshell. And what we found was extremely interesting and timely. Me and my um, research partner, Rachel Shane, who at the time was a medical student at OSU, who now is a doctor at Brown. We really were, we were both Black mothers and were very interested in how Black women were experiencing and navigating, trying to, you know, follow these recommendations or not, and what their experiences were and what they were doing to mitigate risk. And what we found was that women, you know, for the most part, tried to follow the guidelines, but depending on, you know, what worked best for their child to help them get sleep, help them both get sleep safely. Um, A lot of times they had to tweak that. And their biggest issue when doing that was that they felt as if they weren't necessarily being taken seriously. Their concerns were being taken seriously. They were essentially told to do one thing. It didn't work for them. And there was no real dialogue with their provider as for how to mitigate the situation based on their realities. So like Mm -hmm. if a mom doesn't have the space to put their child in a separate room from them, or if their mom does if the mom doesn't have the space to put a full crib, like how do you there it's best to have a conversation about how to best, you know, accommodate that woman, but they weren't given the opportunity to have that conversation. And I think specifically the second part of our project where we sort of go through and Try to understand how they were mitigating risk and the different things that they were doing, what was comfortable and safe in their eyes, really sort of showed a light on how taking into consideration what parents are actually saying their problems are and giving them space in a non judgmental way to sort of voice those concerns and get constructive mm-hmm. feedback is really what they were wanting and needing. So, yeah, that was a master's. That was a master's project and it was super fun. And, um, uh, learned a lot yeah. for sure
0: so we know that the medical system in this country has some issues you know but i imagine people met there people might people might think that you know once you're actually in the hospital or you're interacting with the medical system it's supposed to be very objective and hospitable and just a place where you can get the help and information that you need right so What do, what do the experiences of black women in this medical system tell us about how that system operates?
1: I think it tells us a lot about how it operates. I think the first thing it tells us is, you know, well, for those, for those, let me, let me backtrack for those who imagine that, you know, the medical system is supposed to be this hospitable place where you get all the needs um, that you, and all the help that you, that you need, you get. I'd like, to challenge them to acknowledge the fact that while that may be their experience, that's not necessarily an experience for everyone. And I think we see that play out very plainly and clearly for Black women, both in the statistical data that we have for um, maternal and infant mortality, but also in the more recent, both op-ed and research pieces that shed light on the fact that oftentimes Black women are believed for, you know, the concerns that they voice when they go into the medical sphere. And that's a problem. If you can't and don't take a a patient's symptoms seriously, you're going to misdiagnose and you're going to not touch things. And at the end of the day, that could potentially be the difference between that woman going home with her child or one of them going home without the other. And I think until we really, until we really can grasp and just acknowledge the truth, that this current system, the way that it it's set up, the way it has been set up since Black people were brought to this country, that it's not necessarily in our best interest until we accept that truth. There's no way that we can properly navigate and create a sustainable and equitable way to address and handle the situation. I think Too often we do this dance of where we kind of don't really want to talk about it, but we have to talk about it. And then we sort of talk about it, but we don't really talk about it. And it just keeps going and going. But one of the analogies that I like to think of is like, you can't go to the hospital and then have somebody sort of just eyeball you and be like, oh, okay, this is kind of what you need. You have to really talk to people, to help people. You have to talk to people. And I think the more we listen to Black women, the more we listen to the realities that patients come to the um, medical sphere with, the better we'll be equipped to try to, you know, address and intervene in meaningful and equitable ways. Because I know a lot of the argument is, well, I mean, we've given them access to X, Y, and Z, right? We've given them access to hospitals. We've given them access to you know, ways to better, you know, manage nutrition, but quality and access does not directly translate to equity and care. And we need to really sort of understand that just because we may have the best intentions, that does not absolve us of the responsibility that we have as, you know, humans to make sure that, you know, people are essentially Specifically, when they come into the medical sphere, right? Because if you're going to a hospital, you're probably not going there on your best day, right? right? It's probably a reason that you're there. And until we really sort of, you know, rethink and reimagine what an interaction at a hospital or any social system for that matter should look like, we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to properly intervene hmm. in meaningful ways.
0: Right. Like at the end of the day. The medical system is a social system that, exactly. and it has a, it has a culture, and the, those social interactions and that culture um, have a pretty profound effect on the kind of care that you receive. Right, care itself mm-hmm. is a, it's a social and cultural thing.
1: Exactly, and I think the more the more open we are to understanding the various ways that people need to be cared for the better equipped we'll be to tackle any situation that comes our way. Because one of my favorite um, ethnographies is the scalpel and the bear. And it really sort of goes and tells this beautiful story of this Native American woman who goes and gets the degree to be the medical doctor, right? And then she comes back to her reservation and is present in the ER room and sees the various different ways that the, um, she calls them like the white coats, the people who are in rotation, to get, you know, their sort of practical training and then go off to do what they're going to do have vastly different, not only the people that are there in the hospital, how they interact with them, but also how the providers of care interact with them. And to be blind to the way that people are caring for one another and interacting with one another and how that is in turn affecting that person's health outcomes is to be blind to the whole experience of health and healing. We really have to take more care and consideration and thought into how it is that we care for those that come into our facilities.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really a deeply important thing that uh, we need to understand. Um, so. What are you, you know, you're a doctoral student now. What are you working on for your doctoral
1: research here at Ohio State? Well, I feel like I have to give a disclaimer every time I talk about it. Um, Because due to COVID-19, my um, research topic has changed slightly, but has changed slightly in topic, but not necessarily in the population. I'm going to be doing my dissertation research on community health workers. Specifically, the question is what are the biggest challenges that community health workers face when navigating risk of exposure to COVID-19 and both Mm. their work life and their personal life? And this came out of me seeing, you know, well, one, I actually um, last year got certified by the Ohio Board of Nursing to be a community health worker. And what community health workers do are essentially provide wraparound services for individuals who need care. So they provide resources about what the what their local communities can offer as far as housing and food and education. Um, but they also are, are in charge of helping people book appointments for various medical reasons but also making sure people get to those appointments making sure people get the prescriptions that they need and things of that nature so one of the most interesting things that I found was that black women actually make up the majority of community health workers that we have in Ohio they account for 46 Mm percent of all community health workers in the state and I think it's I think it's very interesting to to see that but also because I'm dealing with Black women and because of the research that I've done, I I understand that there's a certain level of intersectionality that um, becomes a very strong um, component and layer in the research because not only, you know, as we saw COVID unfold, not only were Black people being most affected by this virus, but Black people are now we're saying black women specifically are the ones who are really sort of being put at the front lines to sort of help the everyday people navigate and continue to navigate their health. Right. Specifically in populations and in areas where there are disparities, already pre-existing disparities and health care yeah. and health outcomes. So to see that sort of double whammy of like, hey, you're most affected, but also like you're the one that's like sort of being charged with helping make sure that things mm-hmm. are running as smooth as it can be just seemed like the most most interesting place to sort of start. Also coupled with the fact that a lot of the women who I had the pleasure of getting my certification with have kept in contact with me and have basically, you know, shared with me a lot of the frustration and a lot of the uncertainties that they were feeling um, as the virus continued mm. and continues to unfold because their work life, um, while it is, you know, separate from their personal life, their work life at that point and at this point in time, very much influences their personal life because, should they be exposed or should they know someone who's been exposed or have a patient that's been exposed that directly affects how they are able to intervene mm. and be a part of their social world. Right. So right. like, for instance, one of the, one of the women that I had the pleasure of talking with was telling me about how the school, you know, someone has positive at the school. So then all the kids have to go home, but like, she can't just necessarily leave work. So how does that work? And she can't necessarily be, direct contact with her Mm -hmm. kids should something happen with her. So like, you know, there are lots of layers to this. And I think the best thing that we can do is to really try to understand how these women are navigating these challenges and learn from them how to best intervene, learn by really listening to their experiences in their lives on how we can best serve them so Mm -hmm. that they can continue to help us. Because if you don't take care of those who are caring for us, they won't have anything to give.
0: Right. So you're seeing Black women, a part of populations that are being dramatically affected, but they're also taking on the, the effort and the risk of making sure that those populations um, are connected to the not just the resources they might need for the virus, but you know, a huge range of resources that could contribute to their well-being.
1: Exactly. Especially since in most of these populations, they're already pre-existing chronic conditions. So really trying to understand how it is that they're moving and navigating um, mm-hmm. is crucial.
0: So it, it's it sounds like, you know, the community health worker, the community health workers out there have, you know, an important, role to play in providing care, but also shaping some of the medical system from the bottom up.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Which I think is also one of the interesting components of this doctoral research that I'm interested in diving into is me listening to their stories, but also getting information from them as far as, so what would help you? What are Mm -hmm. some things that you're looking for as far as support? You know, because I think oftentimes, especially from the public health standpoint, we'll they receive all these statistics about things that are going on in neighborhoods. And when you take a, t- a top-down approach, you kind of are like, oh, okay, well this, these are the issues they have in there's infant mortality, obesity, and um, there are some food deserts. So let's just put some more grocery stores, um, cut back on, you know, sweets that are offered at school and uh, see what happens about just doing an implicit bias training and see what happens as opposed to, going in those communities, asking the people who are, who, who, you know, are going to be face-to-face with those factors, what is it that you look for in an interaction with your Mm -hmm. healthcare provider? Asking people who are suffering from obesity, what are some ways that make it hard for you to eat better or have, feel as if you're reaching your ideal capacity as far as mobility? Um, So things of that nature. I think they're, they're equitable and meaningful ways to go about intervening. And helping people, we just have to be open to essentially trying different methods and using mixed methods and asking second opinions and getting verification from the people who we say we want to help and asking them, hey, this is what I found. Does this sound in alignment, you know what I mean, with what is going on? And it's those extra steps I think that really... That really makes a difference.
0: Right. You know, and it, it's easy to think about health interventions as being very top down changes. But what you're describing is sort of this approach that is very contextualized and, you know, emerges out of sort of the experiences people are actually having. Um, but then it's not to ignore structural changes, structural barriers, it's just that the kinds of changes that would be needed. Emerge out of understanding people's experiences and, and what what they actually need, rather than what people at the top think they need.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Having people be involved and making them feel as if they have ownership over that is is very crucial.
0: So related to uh, the pandemic, um, you <laughs> are a co-author on a children's book. Called the Unwelcome Stranger, published by Pangea Education. Um, so, yes. tell us, what was it like to co-author a
1: children's book? Like, what's this project all about? I still can't believe I'm co-author to a children's book. Um, if you had asked me, <laughs> if you had asked me um, before this project started, hey, would you ever write a children's book? I'd be like, I don't know if I'm qualified <laughs> to do that. But uh, thankfully. Drew Edwards and the team at uh, Pangia Education saw me and my work as something that could be beneficial to the project. And from its early beginnings, I was very interested in sort of being a part. A little bit of background about my connection to Pangia Education. I Drew is actually, Drew was the best man at my wedding. Um, so I've known him for a very long time. He's very very close family friend and I'd always been interested in the work that he does with Pangaea as the co-founder and it never really seemed like I sort of like we could find a project that we could collaborate on but once this sort of fell into his lap um, after they did the first um, Unwelcome Stranger um, which is based in Uganda which is where most of the work um, that Pangaea Education does is focused received so much just great press and just people sort of really latching onto the story and the characters that he felt that it would be important to essentially talk about COVID, but from the perspective of those who are being most affected. And in the U.S., African Americans are the ones that are being most affected by COVID-19, specifically when the book first came out. Because of the work that I do working with the African American population, he thought it would be a good idea for us to just talk through the different ways that this could be addressed. I also have a son and a family, and Drew, being of an education background, really wanted it to be, well, both of us really thought it would be important for there to be a component where there's connection building between children and their parents, because I think oftentimes you don't give children enough credit. They are inquisitive. And as anthropologists, we should know, right, children learn about this world from our behavior, And one of my favorite moments in the book is when Jasmine is in the car with her aunt and she's seeing all this stuff pop up on her aunt's phone about COVID. And she's like, who is this COVID person? Is he your boyfriend? Like, who is this? And she's like, no, we'll talk about that later. And then she sees like this, everybody's in a frenzy. They go into the grocery store and she's just like, what are all these? people doing in here? Why is everybody acting like it's the end of the world? And really sort of taking notice, right? Like she's observing everybody sort of act and move and change in ways that are not normal. And I think children really do pick up on that. Um, We are all creatures of habit and when things shift and change from what we know, not only adults see that, but children see that as well. And I really like how much this book really goes into depth about how to engage children in fostering this sort of very inquisitive and scientific way that she sort of thinks through not only what COVID is, but how it is that she can help her family as a unit. And I think that was the biggest, that was the biggest takeaway that we really wanted to make known because I think during the time when this book first came out, a lot of parents were overwhelmed. They didn't necessarily know how to engage with their children about this topic and it was hard. And our biggest goal was really to just make a way to sort of bridge that conversation and make it organic, but also make it interesting and heartfelt and full of sort of familiar, right? You see grandmas in the house and talking with the kids. You see mom and dad working, trying to figure things out. And I think those tidbits make it very organic and I'm just thankful that Drew and Nadi, our amazing illustrator, um, were able to knock it out of the park. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, when I was reading it, uh, I was definitely struck by the personification of the virus. And you see... Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you, you see this um, in social media, right? Like people talking about the virus as this sort of agent that is doing things to us in our lives. But it was a much deeper and more striking coming from the perspective of, you know, like a young person, a young child trying to understand these really rapid changes in the behavior of the adults around them. Who, as you said, are the people that they're learning from and sort of mimicking as they develop.
1: I'm glad you bring that up because I think there's a there's a lot, specifically in the back of the book, there are lots of things and activities for people to do to to foster that that understanding, but also to take a bit of the pressure off of the parents, right? Because I think oftentimes we think we have to explain every little thing, but if we leave room, you know, I mean, for kids to explore and to try to understand and give them and create an environment in which they feel comfortable asking questions about the world around them it'll be easier you know i mean Mm -hmm. as they move forward because as we both know the world only gets more complex as we move forward um and we realize there are more moving pieces involved and i think if we can foster you know some of those scientific sort of skills of observation and asking questions and being open to what you find but also feeling as if you have some sort of agency in how to best take your claim and make a difference, which is what her and her brother Tyler end up doing, right? They mm-hmm. do their little part in the family to try to make it a bit easier, to make life a little bit more, run a little bit more smoothly um, because they felt empowered to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I think, like I said before, take a lot of the pressure off of the parents and really start fostering positive, skills within children
0: yeah I think it's it's a really really inspiring book and I was oh well thank you yeah and I just (laughs) I thought it was you know as as a as a person as a grad student with who doesn't have any kids you know I was reading it and you know impressed by it but I was also just thinking about how as researchers we have these all these complex things that we study and you know, if you can take that down, take that and and distill it down to something that uh, you can use to explain it to children, that sounds really challenging, but super, uh, a super important way to communicate research that we do.
1: For sure. It definitely was a learning lesson for me, Um, working with Drew, because as you mentioned before, in grad school, we're sort of, we're trained to operate in uh, in a capacity where we're always sort of looking at those structural issues, always sort of trying to point to the bigger and root of a lot of the problems that we see. But trying to <laughs> put that in a children's book is um, unrealistic. But what we can do is what we sort of attempted to do in the book was to showcase how everyday little actions and everyday observations and everyday behaviors can turn into more, you know, drastic change. And and Tyler and Jasmine's case, changing the culture of the home, changing the protocol and the ways in which they move Mm -hmm. um, and communicate with each other, but also fostering healthy relationships that communicate needs and communicate um, as things change. Um, and being okay with change and realizing that it doesn't necessarily have to be something that, you know, takes away from the meaningful relationships that you have in your life. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, our theme for this series is engagement. And so I'm wondering, Taylor, um, what is your vision for uh, what an engaged anthropological praxis would be like?
1: i I have to say, for me, when I envision an engaged anthropological praxis, I think of something that has to be for the people, by the people. Um, And what I mean by that is, in all phases of the research, in participatory action research, we hear this a lot, you know, I mean, where it's like you have to get everybody involved from the ground and get their feedback on, you know, what you do as you do it. But I think we have to do more than that. I think it's more about more than just making sure people's voices are heard in the research. I think having people feel and have ownership over the research that's being done in their, in their communities, but also ownership in a way where they can use that research to demand change in their communities. to say, since, you know, since the buzzer word is evidence-based, right? For us to be partners and allies in helping them craft the tools that they need to say to public health officials, to say to the gatekeepers of the structural change that we so desperately need in our country, hey, this is what the research says. This is what we're asking to do, which is in alignment with that. And this is why you need to do it because these are the outcomes that we continue to have because this change is not present. And I think oftentimes in research, we especially in anthropology, are given this beautiful opportunity to have a window into people's everyday lives and to see, you know, their ups, their downs, their struggles, their conquests from a very sort of privileged seat. But what we don't always necessarily get to do is to then in turn give them something that's concrete, give them something that's ammunition, give them that ammo that essentially gives them access to the people in our spheres, right, in higher education and mm-hmm. public policy that are charged with having to do this work. And I think when we when we engage in community or engage in anthropology, we really have to be intentional and mindful of power dynamics, but also of history with the populations that we communicate with. Because dealing with different populations and people of different cultures, there's history there and to be mindful of that and to be critical and our analysis of why it is that we're there, what it is that we're hoping to do can really make the difference between fostering a relationship with that community that is sustainable and fruitful um, for years to come and just, or just going there to get, you know, get what you need to get done for your program so you can get out. Um, And I think (laughs) It doesn't take much to do the first. I think oftentimes we get bogged down with thinking, oh, it has to be this grand big thing for people to do. It could be as simple as creating a map to show to, for local people that have to show, hey, you say you want to help with infant mortality, but hey, we also have an issue with environmental pollution. And this map shows exactly how they're connected. So how about you fix that? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. think it can be as simple as that. I mean, that's data you already have that all you have to do is put on a map. You know what I mean? Like, I think it can be, it doesn't have to be as creating, reinventing the wheel as we think it has to be. And at least for me, as I move forward um, and then learning, as I said before, disengaged engaged practice is definitely something that has to give, give as much as it takes it,
0: it, it's one thing to say like here's this subject i study and it's relevant to the people you know who i learn from and, and study it with but what you're saying is you know it that's that's pretty surface level you know what what an engaged anthropology is is focused more on forming real relationships from the beginning to the end and really aligning the needs and interests of the people you work with, with you, with the motivation for you even being there. Like starting from that, and then building towards, you know, the idea of doing some kind of research project.
1: Exactly. Which I think in, you know, in talking very with you seems very anthropological, right? Like seems yeah. very sort of like, you know, <laughs> hmm, I'm interested in this population. What can I learn from them? Oh, these are the things that are like plaguing them, whether they're alive or dead, right? Like these are the things that were happening with them. How could we have best intervene right. or helped? You know what I mean?
0: So. Yeah. But I, I really sure. like that you brought up that it could be, it doesn't have to be a radical, all-encompassing transformation of a whole space, right? It, it starts right. with things like maps and books and you know these kinds of useful tools for people to enact their own changes on their terms.
1: Because mm-hmm. that's all science really is supposed to be, right? It's the, it's the art of discovery. And once we discover something... You know what I mean? Like it's it's out there. It's out there for everyone to use. And I think the more things we uncover that are useful for all can be used to help make things better, the better off we'll be. People, I think, don't necessarily always see how science can be helpful for them in their everyday lives. And I think anthropology specifically is set up and positioned in a way that can really help bridge that gap between science and like lived realities of people and create more sustainable world that we all can enjoy
0: well it's been really great talking with you taylor and um, hearing (laughs) your perspective and your journey it's um And before we wrap up, I just want to ask for any people out there or women out there, especially women of color that might listen to our podcast, what would you say to them as they think about, you know, getting involved in graduate school or or pursuing a career in research?
1: I said go for it. I never thought that I would be in grad school doing anthropology, Um, but I'd say find What it is that you're passionate about, whether it be a person, whether it be a disease, whether it be an idea and go for it. Because there are so many universities and so many different programs out there that could be the perfect place for you to foster the skills that you need to be the best version of you. And I think you can do it without breaking the bank. I say hey, you know I I've been fortunate enough to not necessarily have to pay for grad school, which has been one of the biggest blessings I think I've ever received and I and I think too often we're deterred from things like that because we're afraid of how much it'll cost or of the different barriers that will be there. And yes, in any profession that you choose, there will be barriers. But what, if I've learned anything about being in grad school, it's that it's a marathon and it's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And at the end of any marathon, if I'm going to be out there running a the marathon, it better be at the end, at that finish line, it better be something that I want, something mm-hmm. that I desperately want. And I think for me, I've found that in anthropology. Um, and for anyone out there who's a woman or a man of color who has something that they are desperately passionate about or interested in, you have the capacity to do anything you want to do, um, and there are a ton of resources out there for you to get involved in. One that really helped me, being the McNair Scholars Program, and that's something I got involved with during undergrad. That really helped, basically, set the stage for me being at OSU. And without those partnerships and without sort of reaching out to other, you know, organizations to be a part. Um, I think things probably would have played out a little bit differently, but Mm -hmm. I definitely would charge anyone who wants to go the extra mile to do it because you, you'd be surprised where you land when Mm -hmm. you actually follow through with those, with those passions.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that Taylor. And thanks for sharing your research with us today. It's been really inspiring to listen to the stuff you're, you know, listen to you talk about the stuff you're interested in and what you're, what you're doing here in Columbus and elsewhere.
1: Of course. I'm so happy you asked me to be a part of this and I can't wait to see who else comes on for this series.
0: We're hoping it's going to be a great one.
1: Oh, it will be. It's going to be great.
0: So uh, to anybody listening out there, um, if you want to check out um, the book that Taylor worked on um, as a co-author, The Unwelcome Stranger, COVID-19, head over to pangeaeducation.org, search for The Unwelcome Stranger, and take a look through some of the other work that they're doing there. There's a lot of very interesting things that they're working on publishing. If you're interested in learning more about anthropology, check out the Anthropology Public Outreach Program website. That's u.osu.edu/apop. You can also join us for Science Saturday on Instagram at Ohio State APOP. Um, there, you can submit your burning questions about humanity and research um, and get some timely answers. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow or like us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can also listen to previous episodes of A Story of Us on Spotify, SoundCloud, or iTunes. Please leave us a comment or a review um, if you enjoy it to make it easier for other people to find the show and learn about anthropology just like you did. Um, Until next time, I'm Shane Skaggs, and uh, this was A Story of Us.